I'm going to take you on a journey. I'm going to take you back, if I can, to February 14th. And that is Valentine's Day, but it was also a Sunday. And on that day, uh, I gave you some indisputable facts about the coronavirus. And I, I take you back to that moment because I want to bring you up to date with what's happening today, uh, I believe, in our world. I want to remind you that Galatians 6 says, uh, do not be deceived, God will not be mocked. And there has been a lot of mocking in our world today of God. But I remind you, God will always have the last word. Amen? So let me give you some indisputable facts. The virus first appeared in Wuhan, China. There is no doubt that is indisputable. Another indisputable fact is the Wuhan Institute of Virology is China's only P4 lab. What that means is the worst of the worst viruses, Ebola, everything else is there. Another indisputable fact, 2016, uh, the WIV researchers conducted experiments using RATG13, the bat coronavirus identified by the WIV in January 20th as the closest sample of SARS-CoV-2, 96.2% similarity, according to the State Department. Also, we know that the Chinese Communist Party prevented independent journalists, investigators, global health authorities from interviewing researchers at that institute. In 2015, the Obama administration and the National Institute of Health under Dr. Anthony Fauci outsourced to the Wuhan Virology Lab by awarding them $3.7 million in research grants for scientific gain-of-function coronavirus experimentation on bats. Now, let me just pause. If you don't know what gain-of-function is, if you sometimes you search for something, you can't find it related to COVID, but if you use the phrase gain-of-function, it will help you. What that really means is that they take something from the animal world, like a bat, they take something from the human world, like an aborted fetus, and they put those two things together, and they find out how fast they can accelerate a virus. And so the idea is that if we can find out how fast it accelerates, maybe we can learn something from it in case we ever have a pandemic. Now, whether the virus was released or accidentally released, somehow it came out of that virology department. There is no doubt about it. The reason I say these things is because here's a headline, May 28th, so it's pretty new. Two days ago, Wuhan lab deleted files showing Fauci authorized funding for risky coronavirus experiments. Here's another one, New York Post. Fauci once argued for risky viral experiments, even if they can lead to pandemic. Quote, the nation's chief medical advisor wrote in the American Society for Microbiology in October 2012 of the public health benefit to gain of function. Now, you know what that is. Viral experiments. In 2012, Fauci acknowledged the risky research could lead to a serious lab accidents, but the chance is rare, and the work is important because it helps the scientific community prepare for a naturally occurring pandemic. Well, I don't know if you've followed much about this, but uh, there's actually a lawsuit filed uh, at the international court now against Fauci and others for... Uh, for not just the mismanagement, but more importantly, for actually being complicit and for his culpability in what's happened with the COVID-19 virus. So I think it's an interesting day we live in. I think you're going to see a lot of shoes fall, so to speak. 
uh, of people that we were claiming to be authority but find that they're not. One of the things that we get all the time from people that uh, follow us here at the church or at American Faith is a question, and the question is this one. What can I do? Can I really make a difference in this world? I feel so hopeless and so powerless. Today I'm gonna give you some very practical things you can do. Also wanna direct you, if you've not yet downloaded the Influence Church app, to do so because all the notes from the messages are there before I preach them. So for example, today's message is already there. And the reason I say that today is because I'm gonna give you some phone numbers and some emails of some key officials that you can contact and let them know how you feel about certain things. And if you don't think that's important and makes a difference, just listen to the message today and I think you will be reminded of how important your voice is and also how important your vote is. So I wanna just start with this statement, you can make a difference. Would you repeat that with me? You can make a difference, okay? You can make a difference. Now, believe it or not, you can make a difference. Nehemiah was one man who in the Bible had a burden from God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he was a cupbearer of the king. And what that meant was that he tasted all the wine and drink of the king before he did. So if anybody dies, it's going to be the cupbearer. So it's a very trusted uh, role and position within a kingdom. It's also a very well-paid uh, job within the kingdom. You can well imagine who wants to sign up for that job, right? But it's also the person is considered expendable. In other words, I'm willing to let you die so that I can live. I thought about those three things, and I thought you and I are cupbearers of the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, because we're well-paid. We are, we are joint heirs of Christ, we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. All the riches of God are given unto us. We are children of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're also in a trusted position. God has entrusted you with the message of the gospel, with the responsibility of taking his story around the world. And we're also expendable. We never should count our life somehow above someone else's. We should always die to self that we might live unto others and therefore glorify God, amen? Now listen to what Nehemiah said in chapter one when he had this burden on his heart. He said, I pray, Lord God of heaven. You see how he begins? Remember how Jesus told us to pray? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? Here on earth as it's already being done in heaven. In other words, we wanna bring down the truth and the power and the authority and the glory of God from heaven to earth. Nehemiah was saying the same thing. I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant. That's God's agreement with you and I, and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray now before you. So it's a great model for prayer, isn't it? God, would you hear your servant? Would your eyes be open? Would you listen to what I have to say? Because I'm coming to you not with something that's not important, not with something that I don't expect you to answer. I know you will. I want you to give attention to my prayer. 
He went on to say in Nehemiah chapter 111, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. You see how he's repeating it? You see, the Bible tells us that meaningless repetition should not be done in prayer, but meaningful repetition is fine in prayer. In other words, you need to say it again, but not in meaningless way. And he says, and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. You see, part of what prayer does is it gives us a healthy respect for who God is. And that's what he's saying here. And let your servant prosper this day. It's interesting that he puts that in the mix, isn't it? He's saying, God, I need to prosper. And when we think about prosperity, we think about money, right? or land, or houses, but the biblical concept of prosperity is that all your needs are met and nothing's lacking. So you might be rich and you might not, but all, are, all your needs met. Are you prospering? Are you moving in life with a sense of freedom and joy and power and authority? And he goes on to say, I pray, grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. And there he reminds us of that very strategic role he played within the kingdom. So Nehemiah made a difference. He didn't know the difference he could make. In fact, he went in before the king, and when he went in before the king, you can read the story as you go through the book of Nehemiah, and the king said, why are you troubled? It's a good question to ask your wine, uh, your cupbearer, isn't it? If you're upset about something, does that mean I'm getting ready to, to die? What do I need to be concerned about? And then he begins to tell him the story. The walls of Jerusalem lay in waste. There's no one there to do anything. And so he, he's, he's apprehensive before the king, the earthly king. He doesn't know how he's going to respond. And the king immediately responds by giving him all the resources that he needs. He writes him letters to grant him access to the king's uh, forest through, uh, on the way. And all these things come, why? Because of prosperity. I want you to get a different idea of prosperity. It's the idea of shalom in the Bible. The idea is in shalom, the peace that, that God gives is nothing broken, nothing missing. That all things are in your life. That you've got what you need. You say, well, I, but I want this. That's fine, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about every need is met, plus you live in a margin so that you can respond when there's a need in, around you in someone's life. Well, I like to follow headlines and because they intrigue me, especially if they happen to be on AmericanFaith.com. little shameless plug there, amen. But listen to this one. Zondervan won't publish God Bless the USA Bible, says marketing was premature after a backlash. Well, that caught my attention. And I, I, first of all, I didn't know what the God Bless the USA Bible was. I hadn't heard of it. Um, but then it said there was a backlash against it. And I wondered, was there a backlash against it because somehow it was not accurate to American history? That was my first thought. And then I read a little further. Well, let me give you just a quote right from that article. Zondervan and HarperCollins will not publish or manufacture a version of the Bible that would feature various patriotic American documents for the anniversary of 9-11 terrorist attacks. Contrary to concerns expressed online, the initial report about the possibility of a God bless the USA Bible being released prompted a backlash online, including a petition backed by more than 900 signatories. Now let me tell you my first reaction. 
I don't need a God bless America Bible. Can I just be honest? But if they're gonna publish it, and they're not gonna publish it because only 900 people objected, then I get mad. Is that fair? Because I realized they acted like, I expected it would read nine million people signed this petition. Do you realize they stopped something, 900 people stopped something of a major publisher in the world. So the first thing I did was find out if we could get the, uh, the email or the phone number of the CEO of Zondervan. So we have his uh, uh, email up here. And remember, so if you wanna just email him right now and tell him that uh, I don't think it's a good time to be unpatriotic. I think it's time to stand up for America. Whether you wanna buy the Bible or not, there is a, there's a matter of principle that if you don't stand now, you won't be able to stand in the future. You won't even have an opportunity to stand. God has called us to stand as people, as human beings. To say, I, I wanna make a difference in my world. Here's another one, this might come a little closer to home because these are the things that you're gonna be concerned about. And I'm gonna be sending this out to our mailing list, um, these all 17 of them, but this headline, 17 Dangerous California Bills Being Introduced by Legislators. Now, maybe I've got your attention because you live in California. If you're in this room or you're outside, and most of you probably watching online or in California. But let's go to AB 101, Mandatory Ethnic Studies course for high school students. This bill will mandate high school students take a course in ethnic studies in order to graduate from high school. Now let me just pause right here. This is also the one that will eliminate Christianity from the heritage and the history of California and in its place put as the Aztec God of human sacrifice. Are you with me on this one now? Have I got your attention? All right, so let me just read on here. Uh, the curriculum is infused with critical race theory meant to create resentment among non-white students and guilt and shame among white students. Now, I think it would be good for you to let your representatives know that you don't like this one. Okay, let me go on. I'm just gonna give you two of the 17. AB 1184 require insurance companies to keep secrets from parents this Planned Parenthood-sponsored bill will force insurance companies to hide from parents sensitive medical procedures given to their adult and minor children. You see, ultimately, what socialism and its older brother communism wants to do is it wants to control your children and take away all parental authority over them so that they can become wards of the state and they will direct the path of their life. So you say, well, what can I do? Well, here's Senator Min. You can call him. And then you can also call your state assembly. Now, these are the ones that are here. If you're north of the 91 or south of the 91, these are gonna be your representative. If you're in your Belinda, that way, you're gonna have a different set of representatives. But what happens when you call? Well, first of all, if you call the local office, which means like Irvine in most cases, uh, if you only call one, call the local one because they're younger, less experienced people staffing those and they will completely freak out if they get 50 phone calls. <laughs> if you call the Sacramento office, they won't be quite as reactionary because they're used to people calling that number. So what you do is you just get on the phone and you say, look, all, you're gonna get a voicemail anyway, so don't worry, you're not gonna have to like explain it. You're just gonna go ahead and say, listen, 
I don't like these two bills. In fact, you've got a lot of bills that I don't like, and, uh, and, and if you just want to wait until Monday or Tuesday, I'll give you all 17 bad bills that are uh, on, on the floor or will be on the floor shortly, and you can call them up and kind of let them know what you think. So you, when you ask me, what can I do to make a difference, this, this is what you do. If you don't take the initiative to make a difference, then you have no right to gripe. And that's, what, that's kind of been my new thing. When people gripe at me about how bad it is, I say, well, tell me what you've done to make a difference. Because it's a fair question, right? If I look at my wife wanted me to clean bird poop off the driveway yesterday, and I said, it's your burden. <laughs> then I felt guilty, and I went out and did it. But you see, if you find a burden, then it's your burden. Do something with it. Act. You can make a difference. Amen? Amen? Let me tell you something else I've discovered in Scripture, and that is there is a famine in the land. Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land. Now let me pause there and kind of explain what's happening here. God says there is a famine, there is a famine coming. There's something coming on the land, but the famine that I'm going to send is gonna be one that's directed by my heart and my mind. In other words, I'm gonna create the scarcity on planet Earth, and I'm gonna do it because the way you have responded to the Word of God. Right now, we take the Word of God for granted. We take for granted that you have probably one or more Bibles at home. Whether you read them or not, you have them. And you take for granted they're always going to be there, they're always going to be accessible, and they're always going to be legal to read and to interpret. And that really is assuming that the world will stay the way the world is. I think the last year has proven one thing. The world does not stay where it is. It has a way of somehow spiraling downward unless we, through prayer and involvement, help to make a difference. Amen? He says, it's not a famine of bread or a, or a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. What would happen if you never heard the word of God again? You never heard it spoken by someone else. You never could read it yourself. You totally were, it was totally cut off and made illegal. Right now, the ACLU, you know what that is, the Association of Cockeyed Lawyers United, is pushing hard to remove uh, Jesus and prayer from the military. The irony is that they know that the most uh, solid people of faith, probably of any group in America, are the military. You know why? Because you don't have to be in the foxhole long, so to speak, to know that you need God. When you're in harm's way, you need God. When you're in a crisis, amen, you need God. Have you noticed how your prayer life goes up when you're in trouble? You ever notice how you're speeding and you see a policeman, how you pray? God, I just pray for temporary blindness right now on that. But what is it? It's something in us, you know, and, and so we, when we see this in our life, but it says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring a hearing of the word, a famine of the hearing of the words of God. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east, they shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but look at this, they shall not find it. 
So God says it's coming. It's not in Amos's day that he wrote. He said it's coming in the future. There's going to be a famine for the word of God. I'm gonna send it because out of your neglect, I'm gonna take away that which you said you don't need. And you're gonna find yourself empty. You know the greatest judgment of God is always neglect. Through the years, I've, I've known people that said, hey, if there's a God, let him strike me dead now. And I said, well, that's really not how he works. You don't understand. He's not like in lightning bolt world, you know, looking for somebody to zap. What he does is he just makes his voice harder to hear. He takes away his blessing. He takes away his hand, and neglect comes in, and then you all of a sudden find yourself in a crisis mode looking for him and having a hard time to find him. That's why the Bible says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Why? Because your heart can get hard and you don't hear his voice is what the scripture is referring to there. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord was precious in those days and there was no open vision. So there are periods in history where the word of God becomes precious because they, they've lost sight of it, and then all of a sudden they rediscover the word of God, and sometimes that happens in our lives as individuals, right? We, we kind of go through life, and we don't read the word of God, and something comes up, and, and we drive into the word of God, and we go, wow, this is amazing. I had no idea what I'd been missing, and I think that's true in our lives. When we don't read the word of God, we don't know how precious the word of God is, but when we start reading it, we realize how precious it is. There are times where I just sit down and I think, you know, I'm just gonna read a couple of verses. The next thing I know, I've read a couple of chapters. Because I can't release it. It's not, it's not a book I read. I'm encountering God by his spirit. And the Bible says the word of the Lord is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces that division in me of soul and spirit and bone and marrow. And, it, and then it reveals, it says in Hebrews 4.13, the true intentions of the heart. And all of a sudden, when I read the word of God, I go, oh, now I know what my heart's all about. I didn't realize where, where I was, but now I get it, God, and, and it's the word of God that does that. Thy word, O Lord, is fixed in the heavens. It is eternal. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, the Bible says, abides forever. Proverbs 30 says, the word of the Lord is pure words like, like gold refined in a furnace seven times. You see, the word of God is God's character, his nature revealed, and it never goes away. It's in heaven too, because it's him. And the reason you encounter it, and, and there's different applications when you go through life, is because it's living and it's always. That way you can read it all, you can memorize it all, but you never master it. Because you cannot plumb the depths of, of Almighty God. How far down, how deep into God will you go before you finally understand God? There is, you can, you'll never get there. And that's why when we read it, I, I gave this illustration, I think, this week. I said, you know, the, the Bible is kind of like walking into the Empire State Building on the first floor. And you look around and go, wow, this is the Empire State Building. It's really cool. And you saw it when you walked up, and it was massive, and you, this is amazing, but if you leave without going to all the floors or going to the observation tower at the top, you never understand the Empire State Building. If you don't understand its origin and its nature and what's happened in that place, you don't really understand the Empire State Building. 
But you go to the next floor in the Bible and you go, wow, I see new things, deep things that I hadn't seen before. Jesus talked about the bread of life and immediately our mind goes to a loaf of bread. No, 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 God said, I am the bread of life that comes from heaven to earth. Like Moses, when he got, when the children were fed with manna in the wilderness, it was heavenly bread that came to earth and it sustained him one day at a time. Jesus quotes this scripture in Matthew chapter four and verse four. He says this, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You notice he quotes the scripture. He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy there, and he says, it is written. In other words, it is fixed, it is established, it is true, it is sound, you can bank on it. It is written, Satan, this is the temptation in Matthew 4, and he tried to tempt him on three occasions, but each time Jesus responded, it is written, it is written, it is written, and he quotes back the word of God. If you wanna win spiritual battles, you quote the word of God. That's why you better have it in your heart. You better have it in your heart. It's really interesting that Barna did a survey recently about how many people had a, Christians had a biblical world view. Now I wanna talk to you a little bit about this because you may not know, be familiar with that term, but I'm gonna help you to understand what it means. So a biblical worldview is a framework from which we view reality and make sense of life and the world. So everyone in this room has a worldview, and you may or may not have a biblical worldview. But I wanna give you five of the components that I believe make that up, and then I'm gonna give you some of the questions that Barna asked to find out how many Christians had a biblical worldview. First one is this, how did, we, how did we get here? A biblical worldview said God is a creator God who spoke the world into existence, and man and woman were created in the beginning, and they procreated, and here we are today. A non-biblical worldview says that we evolved from a lower life form, that the world just came by a big bang, and that we somehow were able to pull ourselves out of the primeval sludge and move through life without gills, fins, and tails, and we became human beings. Well, that's not a biblical worldview, okay? Secondly, where are we going? So a non-biblical worldview says, well, you know, you just gotta live life to the fullest because you're only gonna live X number of years, and so get the most out of every moment without thought of eternity. A biblical worldview says that you have to invest in this life, your very life, your, your, your money, your resources, your time, all those things, because it's going to amount to treasure in heaven one day, that God has heaven for us, God has eternity for us, and we don't just end it all in the grave. A biblical worldview says there is a heaven, there is a future, there is a plan, there is an eternity. Number three, what are our goals? If your goals are to just enjoy life and get power and position and money and all those other things, then you don't have a biblical worldview. Now, you might have those things, but if that's your goal, then you're missing the point. The point is that if God prospers me, then I use that to help others and further the kingdom of God. It's not that having possessions and having money and positions and all those things are wrong, it's just how do I use them? It's my attitude about what I have and what are the goals that I have in terms of God and the kingdom. Next is how should I live? Do I believe there are absolute standards of truth and morality that govern my behavior? 
or do I think I'm free to do whatever I want to do? And that question comes back to my world view. How do I look at, at life? I have to look at it through a set of lenses called the Word of God. And then fifth, what is truth? People say that truth is relative, and what that means is that, well, if it's true for you, that's fine, but that's not true for me. Well, that's not truth. Truth has to be absolute. That is, there has to be a standard by which we govern and decide everything else in life. We believe that the Word of God is the truth, and that that is our standard. It is absolute truth. It's not one of many truths. It is absolute truth. So that's why when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he was making a really big statement. He wasn't doing something cute for Christians to quote. What he was saying was, I am the way, there is no other way. See how definitive his answer was? I am the way, there is no other way. I am the truth, and there is no other truth. And I am the life, and there is no other life. And no one, listen to that, underscore it, no one gets to the Father except by me. So he said, I am the mediator, the go-between between God the Father and you. And if you're gonna get to the Father, you're gonna have to go through Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, he brought heaven and earth together. He brought God and man together by the spilling of his blood when he took away your sins and rose from the dead that he might also take away the sting of death from mankind. So that's what a biblical worldview consists of. So Barna did a survey, and he found that only 17% of Christians who consider their faith important and attend church regularly actually have a biblical worldview. Let me give you some of the questions. Do absolute moral truths exist? Is absolute truth defined by the Bible? Did Jesus Christ live a sinless life? Is God the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe? Is salvation a gift from God and cannot be earned? Is Satan real? Does a Christian have responsibility to share his or her faith? Is the Bible accurate in all of its teachings? Those are the questions that were asked regularly attending Christians, and only 17% answered in a way that would indicate they had a biblical worldview. It's always good to go back and say, what do I believe and why do I believe it? For me, I make life really easy. I said, I believe the word of God is true. Now, I don't understand everything that's in there. I don't understand every page and every word, and some things I go, I don't even know what this means, God, but I, but I still believe in the revelation of God, yeah. right? And then what I find is revelation is progressive, and what that means is that in my Christian faith, when I start out over here as a new Christian, that I progressively, as I move down this life journey, I progressively understand more of the word of God and I understand more about me and God himself. I also believe that revelation is progressive in the sense that we know more today than the apostle Paul knew in his day because we're 2,000 years into the future and we can look back on what he wrote and what others wrote in the word of God, and God is also opening up revelation to his word to us as we go down through life. So now we look and we say, oh, now I understood what he was talking about when he was talking about the return of Christ, because now I've got more insight into it, because I live in the fullness of time, fullness of revelation, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You know, the battle lines are becoming clear. 
I've said this a couple of times, and I like to keep saying it to remind us about it. Um, when I had the interview with the Epoch Times, they asked me the question, what do you see happening here today in America that is similar to communist China? And if you don't know, the Epoch Times came out, was started by uh, some people who got, businessmen who got out of communist China and tried to write from America to help convince people in China about what they were suffering through. Then they realized America was in as much trouble uh, in the early stages as communist China was. And so they went from a Chinese only to a Chinese and English publication. So that's their history, all right? So they are very anti-communist because they lived it, because they see it. So they asked me that question, and I said, well, here's what I see happening. I see that there are two churches in America, and I don't mean Catholic and Protestant. What I mean, two churches in America, there are the believing churches and there are the conforming churches. Uh, Dennis Prager just did an interview um, with pa Pastor Rob McCoy, who, whose church remained open like we did through this lockdown, and who was fined um, uh, on numerous occasions, who were threatened uh, with lawsuits and different things along the way. And the title of the, the Prager talk was Churches That Refuse to Kneel. You see, a lot of churches in this season kneeled. And here's what's going to happen. Now that, now that things are getting a little bit easier in society, that the mandates are a little bit less on people, that I think there's going to be a lot of Christians who don't ever go back to church. That's my thought. I really believe that. But I also think that a lot of them are going to go back and just think business as usual again, and I'm just going to go through, you know, Christianity is going to be my hobby again, and I'm just going to enjoy life. And they're going to forget what was learned in this season and how valuable it was. And you never take for granted the fact that your church is going to be open, that you're going to never have to worry about influenced church, whether we're going to be open under government mandates, because we will. My dad was in the military, and uh, he served about 31 years uh, as a colonel in the Army when he retired, and he was buried at Arlington uh, with full military honors. Um, my dad was, uh, was a unique guy. He, uh, he went in the Army the first time when he was 18 and spent about four years, got out, and then went back in when World War II broke out. This was right before uh, World War, where he left for World War II. Uh, newly married to my mom. And I'll show you another slide there. Uh, there's my dad uh, as a captain. I, I like the pipe. Never saw him smoke a pipe in his life. So I think he was posing. Uh, uh, wanted to look like MacArthur probably. But uh, this is actually in Japan uh, right after World War II. He was assigned there to the Supreme Allied Headquarters in Japan. And uh, next picture. Let's see what, what else we got. Uh, there he is as a major. Um, and then, my dad always looked the same age. I don't know what the deal was. He, he just always looked old. I don't know what the deal was, but he, he was 15, looked old. And, you know, but he looked the same when he was 96. So anyway, and one more picture here. And then there he is. Um, I don't know if you can see him there. Where is he? Oh, right there, toward the front. Uh, bottom, uh, from the left, right over. And uh, these are all the nations of the world, uh, or the armies that are, uh, that are set up in the Supreme Allied Headquarters in Europe here. And so you see different nationalities, different people, different militaries. So uh, why do I show you those? Because it's Memorial Day. 
Memorial Day is not about those who served, it's about those who died. And it began uh, after the Civil War when some uh, ladies from the South began to decorate graves of both the North and the South. And there was something that brought those two worlds together in that moment. It was called Decoration Day at first, later became Memorial Day. I believe it was 1971 when it finally became an official holiday and we moved it to Monday, so it would always be the Monday following. Um, the idea was that you could take off a day and get a long weekend and uh, go out to Lake Havasu. That was kind of the plan. <laughs> and all of us who don't have boats, we're here. <laughs> Amen, we got no boat, got no friend, we're here. We just pray that a little extra reward from God because we're here <laughs> and not on a boat. I don't have my beach body yet anyway, so I can't go. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever get that, but anyway. But my, my dad would tell these tales, and when he was in Korea, he had a, the highest uh, clearance you could get in terms of security, and he would tell stories about the communists and what they did, the North Koreans and what they did, and as they were infused, you know, uh, power and, and weapons by uh, China. And he would talk about, about communism as a kid, and I, I you know, I, I didn't really know what that meant, but I, at that time, the USSR was still around, and, and so the threat of, of a nuclear battle with, uh, with USSR, what we call Russia today, and a smaller, much smaller grouping of that, but that was a reality. And there was, there was something that you said, we, we're fighting against an ideology that wants to control us and to destroy us. And so great steps were taken to try to correct that. Let me just quote a little bit from the Communist Manifesto that was written by Karl Marx. This is 1848. He said, communism abolishes eternal truths. So if you're ever tempted to say, well, communism sounds like it makes sense, and by the way, socialism is its younger brother. It just, you go from socialism into communism, so just for clarity's sake. Communism abolishes eternal truths. It abolishes all religion and all morality. So what it does is it says there is no absolute truth. The only thing that matters is the ideology and the philosophy of communism. So if you don't understand what's really behind all of this, you can't really understand what's going on. Remember, it was Adolf Hitler who relied heavily on Karl Marx and Frederick Engels to frame his mindset on anti-Semitism. The anti-Semitism we see growing in our country today where the UN just recently, I believe it was two days ago, created a permanent under investigation for the nation of Israel for crimes against the Palestinians. Now, if you remember the story, the Palestinians started shooting rockets into Israel and Israel responded. And we talked about this, how if, you know, if Orange decided they were mad at Anaheim and they started lobbing 4,000 rockets into Anaheim, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking we need to respond. Just a, just a thought. <laughs> Battle lines are clear. Joel 3.14 uh, says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Do you know every one of you are in the valley of decision? Let me tell you what's interesting about that scripture. You never fight or win battles in a valley. Battles are always won at the high point. 
If you find yourself trying to make a decision in the valley, you've already lost. And he said, so multitudes of people haven't really got up on the mountain because they're they're down in the valley trying to figure out what am I gonna do, what am I gonna do? How do I respond, how do I act? And I promise you, one day you will be unable to act because you stayed too long in the valley of, of decision. Joshua 24, very familiar scripture to us. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. He says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That is a definitive decision that you have to make. Exodus chapter 23, 24, you shall not bow to their gods. There is a God called Pharma. There is a God called Tech. Those are gods. See, they don't have to have a spiritual nature, though they do have them behind that, but they don't have to have that for us to idolize them and worship them and just, and you know, and so everything Pharma hands out, we think it must be good, it must be good, it must be good. Because they wouldn't do anything bad to us, would they? Well, they have a long history of doing bad stuff to people for money. Nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. This was the command that God gave Israel. Francis Schaefer, uh, Schaefer, not the shaver, he also shaved once in a while. He did have a beard. Um, But Francis Schaefer, a great intellectual from uh, Switzerland, wrote these words. Rome did not fall because of external forces such as the invasion by barbarians. Rome had no sufficient inward base. I think about that thought. They, they were just, at, just external and there was nothing inside that held them together. The barbarians only completed the breakdown and Rome gradually became a ruin. That's what's happening to America. We're losing our inward base. But guess what? You can get it back. You can get it back. I like this analogy. I use it all the time. I'm gonna use it as many times as I can. You know, on the playground, remember the playground when you were a kid? I don't know how they've changed, but in the playground of my day, they're probably about the same. And that is, there was always somebody that could beat up somebody else. Remember those? And, and if you were the guy that was getting beat up, you didn't really enjoy recess. But there was always the kid that everybody seemed to want to pick on, and that kid, you just knew that he couldn't take it, and, and the bully knew he couldn't take it, and, and so he would always pick on him. And then there comes this day where the little skinny kid snaps. Remember that? And this guy goes insane. He goes nuclear. And you're, everybody's kind of like, whoa, what's going on with that guy? And the bully gets beat up and he's crying. Now the bully's crying, you know? And now the skinny guy becomes the hero. Oh, we, I want to be friends with the skinny guy now, right? Guess what? Right now what's happening in America is the bully has only got about two more pushes until true patriots are gonna go nuclear. We sang a song at the beginning about, I don't have anything to fear because, you know, even if 10,000 armies come against me, I'm not afraid, amen? I'm not afraid. Psalm three, verse three and six. O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. Are you downcast right now? Lift up your head. It's God is your shield. He's the lifter of your head. Lift up your head. Keep looking up. You're seated in heavenly places with Christ. Amen? 
I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves uh, against me all around. I'm outnumbered, so? What's your point? I don't follow you. Well, what am I going to do? I, I still don't follow you. We, we started by saying you can make a difference. Do you believe you can make a difference with God? See, one, one man or woman with, with God is a majority. The Bible is filled with people who were underdogs, who were all alone, who won great victories. We all love the underdog, don't we? Maybe you're the underdog, then step up. Time to step up, amen? How many would say, I'm gonna step up? Oh, about four of you did, let's try it again. I'm gonna step up. Try it again, I'm gonna step up. God heard you. You gotta step up. If you said I'm gonna step up, you gotta step up. Amen? And you're saying, man, I, before you said God heard me, I didn't wanna, now I don't know what I wanna do here, amen? You know, the invitation of God is always the same from Genesis to Revelation. It is an invitation for those who do not believe to believe. To put your hope, your faith, your trust in God and let God fight your battles for you. We call that salvation. That first step is salvation. Lord, I believe in you. Save me. I believe Jesus died, buried, rose from the dead to give me life. That's your first step in your life. Amen? Okay, now you say, I've done that, Pastor. Now what do I do? Now you're a Christian. Now you've also got to take that next step of decision and say, now I'm going to live out in my life what I am by my new, newly created nature after the image of Almighty God. And that's the calling of God on all of our lives. You'd be surprised how, how fun it is when you finally do it. You say, like, I, you know, it's too hard. No, it's not hard. Just try it. Try it. I dare you. No, I double dog dare you. Amen.